Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this installment of the Ag Emerge podcast. Today, Dr. Zach Bush joins us as we discuss the convergence of regenerative agriculture and human health. Dr. Zach is a triple board certified physician and internationally recognized educator on the intersection of the microbiome with human health, disease, and our food production systems. His work is giving new insights into root cause solutions in the sectors of farming, big pharma, and Western medicine at large. Dr. Zach's work in both for-profit and nonprofit arenas alike is creating avenues to foster collaborative action for all stakeholders in the global community, promoting a regenerative future of health for the planet and our children. We're excited to share this podcast with you today. You can learn more about Dr. Zach at www.zachbushmd.com. So let's dive right in. I thank you so much for being here today with us on this podcast, uh, Dr. Zach. It's just amazing to have you in studio. I know you're very, very busy. I love to see all the work that you're doing individually and the work of Farmer's Footprint. Uh, I stalk you on all the social media channels, and it's fun to see you being an advocate for not only agriculture, but human health and everything that's connected in between. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Monty. I appreciate you and Kim and uh, the opportunity to be with your audience here. Um, so we know you, you've got many certifications and, and, and you're a medical doctor. How, how did you get into interested in soil? It seems like uh, very detached from all the grueling work you would have done going through uh, medical school and all the train, traditional training that you've had. Can you, can you give us a little background, your story, how, how you got interested in, in, in dirt, some people call it, but you and I know it's called soil. Very good. Yeah, I certainly thought it used to be, used to think of it as dirt as well. Um, but uh, I was, uh, my background is in internal medicine and endocrinology. I was studying in the clinics, you know, I was clinically practicing the typical adult care for things like diabetes, uh, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, bone disease, autoimmune diseases, all this stuff with the hormone systems of endocrinology. And in the basic science realm, I had gotten into cancer. And so I had this kind of mashup of these two worlds in my in my daily experience at the University of Virginia. And uh, it was during that journey that I started to find myself accidentally into the world of nutrition. My chemotherapy development was around vitamin A compounds that could interact with mitochondria, which are little bugs that live inside of our cells. And then uh, in the, on the clinical side, you know, really focusing in on uh, the way in which you know, the food was impacting things like fatty liver and the development of diabetes and all these conditions. And so the, the two worlds started to collide. And by 2006, 2008 kind of time frame, a lot of new insight was coming in on the importance of gut health and the importance and influence of the microbiome, the ecosystem of the bacteria and fungi within our guts and its impact on human health and disease. And so that was the setup for this moment by 2009, 10, when I was starting to realize I really wanted to get into nutrition 
and start to think about how to prevent disease rather than just chronically being in, you know, drug development mindset of, you know, throwing band-aids and, and drugs at, at advanced disease. And so I uh, set out to start a nutrition center at the university. That didn't work out due to the bureaucratic, you know, uh, realities of academic medicine. I wanted to start a plant-based nutrition program where we teach people really high nutrient density foods that didn't fit into the food pyramid that the nutritionists and dietitians were teaching at the hospital. And so they ended up being the ones that that uh, really became the blockade to the success of this clinic. And so ironically, I, I had to leave the university to start a nutrition clinic uh, in my own mindset. And so that happened in 2010. And I decided I really wasn't interested in going to teach Santa Barbara how to be more vegan and more you know, healthy. And I really wanted to figure out how the heartland of America and these food deserts could be reached. And so I started my clinic in a little town of 540 people in, in Southern Virginia and uh, reaching out to a huge food desert to County you know, Beck, Buckingham County where uh, there's really no, no grocery stores. The majority of people are eating out of gas stations. I have to drive to adjacent counties to get their, their groceries. And so that, that was kind of the setup for what I do today. A couple of years into that journey in a nutrition clinic, found that my patients were not behaving like the textbooks and nutrition said they should. Um, I saw a lot of people increasing their inflammation markers on health food. And at first I thought, well, they must just be lying to me. They must not actually be eating the kale salads and kale juices that I asked. They must be eating Twinkies on the side or something. To come to find out these people were eating healthier than I did, but it took me a couple of years to really you know, come to trust my patients at the at the level that you should. Uh, there's this subtle teaching in in Western medicine not to trust our patients. We always believe they're screwing up. They're not doing what they're supposed to. We're taught that in these subtle ways. And so it took me a couple of years of a developing relationship with my real patients before I realized, wait, they're really, really honest and they're really working their asses off to do this right. And they're very frustrated that it's not working in their body. And so that was my my introduction, I think, maybe into being a physician for the first time. Ultimately, a physician has to be there in relationship with patients, has to have a trust relationship at the deepest level uh, to move anything forward and, and came to see those patients as my greatest teachers. And uh, they really taught me a ton about human biology is how it actually works, not how it's taught in the textbooks. And I think so many people across the country right now are very frustrated about what's happening to their biology. They feel their bodies are collapsing, their metabolism is collapsing, their immune systems are collapsing, they've got diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, their kids have you know everything from cancer all the way to autoimmune disease at young ages. And so we have this collapse going on and the, the current paradigm is typically you need lots of drugs and maybe it's your fault for not living a healthy lifestyle, um, but there's certainly nothing you can do about it now because you have a disease and now you need drugs. And so in reversing all of that, uh, came to start to realize, okay, we need to empower each of us. We need to each be an empowered consumer to realize we can control our environment. But then we also have to come to terms with what we can't control. And that started to be, what are the chemicals in these foods? And so as I started to study why my patients were reacting poorly to health food, we quickly started to uncover when we, in studying, you know, 1960s versus 1990s or, you know, 1980s to 2010, what were the difference in nutrients in food? And it was pretty dramatic. You have a sudden loss of lycopene in tomatoes that used to be our richest source of lycopene, which is an awesome anti-cancer compound 
suddenly devoid in our food. And so suddenly realize we're missing our nutrients and there's all these weird new toxins in our foods and beverages. A glass of American wine typically has, you know, residues of 64 herbicides and pesticides in there. And so very hard to find a clean cup, you know, a glass of wine or, or uh, you know, piece of food today. And so that started to, to kind of uncover, well, this is my patients doing the best they can to control their environment to the best of their ability. But there's this huge lack underneath the surface of a information labeling isn't right we don't have good labeling laws in this country as they do in europe for american brands that are happy to to make meet those labeling laws in europe and canada but here in the united states we continue to say oh it'd be too hard to label the you know well the consumer would be confused or it's too costly all these excuses we hear from industry when in reality, consumer behavior just changes when you see the label, and they're trying to resist that change happening here in the states when they've had to comply elsewhere. And so, you know, all of that kind of really brought me back down to the reality of we're going to have to fundamentally change our relationship, not to food, but to the food industry, actually to the farming itself. And ultimately, that took us down to the soil level. And at the soil is where I made my big, biggest breakthroughs from a science standpoint in 2012. A colleague brought in a soil uh, white paper, 90 pages long, and I was flipping through it quickly. And around page 40, found this huge molecule that looked a lot like uh, the chemotherapy I used to make. And so that was the big aha moment of, oh my gosh, what if there was medicine in the soil? We've been looking for 4,000 years since Chinese medicine started at plants to be our source of, of medicine. Hippocrates, 2,000 years ago, let thy food be thy medicine. But what if the soil itself had medicine in it? So that was my big breakthrough in 2012. And so since then, my lab has become kind of world experts on studying these, these tiny little carbon molecules made by bacteria and fungi that are enriched in soil environments as well as in our gut lining. All right. Well, exciting. So um, several things to unpack in there. I, I really appreciate it. But the first thing I heard was is when you moved from university uh, to starting your own lab, uh, that took some guts. Right. I mean, that you went from a well, probably a well-paid position to a completely high risk. Is this going to work? I mean, that that's that's commendable. I mean, talk about that shift in thinking. And then once you're at the lab, you also had another ship or at the health clinic. You had another shift in thinking from, hey, my patients are cheating to wait a minute. Uh, you know, there's a, that that uh, healthcare system paradigm of the patients wrong. We're right. Um, share about that. What was that like to make those changes in your life to, to make those significant shifts and, and why you did them and how you, how you were able to accomplish that? Uh, fortunately, I wasn't getting paid anything at academia either way. They, they completely abused <laughs> us there as well. So my middle manager at McDonald's was making more money than I was as a, a full-blown physician scientist at University of Virginia. So I wasn't making enough to, to you know, uh, support my family well anyway. So it wasn't a huge jump financially. I mean, I've been living paycheck to paycheck my entire life. And so there's a sense that, you know, there's going to be enough for whatever it is that I'm supposed to do with my life and, you know, put some, certainly some stressors on my family over the years, I think. Um, but I think all of us in this country are getting used to financial stress. Like that's just part of, part of life. So I, I, I would say that was a lesser part of it. Much more of the stress came out of uh, being alone. I, I was terrified to start my clinic alone and be on call 365 days a year and be 100% responsible for my patients. 
um, in the hospital setting and in most clinics, you're never 100% responsible. You always have, you know, this diffuse kind of team of specialists and social workers and all these people that are going to take responsibility for that patient. And you get to come chip in your little piece of your, your nugget of wisdom or whatever it is, and you get paid to do that. But at no point do you feel like the buck stops here. You And that became the reality very quickly. And I had a sense of it the night before I started my clinic in 2010, and I was in a near panic state. Um, and so that, that, that was really the biggest shift for me was less about the money and much more about personal responsibility for human life. And uh, that that is a really precious thing to be put in, in the place of really, um, but it, it was anxiety inducing at the time, but I came to find out, you know, in the years that followed, not only were those patients my, my greatest teachers, they were also my greatest colleagues. They were in it with me and they really, you know, they understood my limitations and uh, they never expected more f from me than I could give. And uh, it was a really beautiful give or take, I think, and a real learning curve there. And I think it says something to the state we're in with farming, just as it is in big pharma. Uh, as farmers, you guys are taught that, you know, if you don't get this newest chemical and if you don't keep up with the Joneses next door, you're going to fall behind and you're you're going to, you know, you're not going to have the crop yields. You're not going to get this or that. And so we develop into these fear paradigms. And ultimately, if we just have a few humans that will listen to each other and start to troubleshoot together instead of feel like I need something of yours or you have a commodity I need. Instead, if we just say, here's the issue is I've got a thousand acres and I would like to feed people out the back end of that. And I would like to also support my family in the process. Here's my stake in that. I need this much a year to meet farming expenses, family expenses. You need this much to do what, you know, like ultimately it's just these very simple relationships could change the world. And it certainly changed my world. And I went from this huge interdependent codependent relationship with massive billion dollar pharmaceutical companies and billion dollar hospital systems and me as a little cog in the machine to this situation where I became my own independent mind and my own independent person and engaged with other independently minded people. And we inspired one another to do great things. And so my patients were part of that, the colleagues that would eventually come alongside to help me get all my companies off the ground. All of these things have been a very grassroots experience and I wouldn't give a second of it away. It was such a precious experience to watch people do something bigger than themselves. Right now, we're all being treated like an invisible little, you know, cog in a machine that's too big to fail, and it's too big for you to have any influence over. You don't understand market pressure, so we have to, you know, make those decisions for you. You just are going to kick out corn, and we'll tell you how much we'll pay. If you lose money on that, the U.S. government will step in with taxpayer dollars and give you a, a you know, a, a payout through the crop insurance or welfare program. And so, you know, all of these things, you know, are are thrown out there like, oh, you, you're you're just a, a farmer. You, how could you possibly understand all this? Same thing. Oh, you're just one doctor. How could you possibly understand a three trillion dollar healthcare industry? And it's too complicated. You need the insurance companies to figure that out. And but you can't really work with the insurance companies directly because you're too small of a doctor. And so we should we'll have the hospital kind of work on your behalf. But you actually don't work for the hospital. I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of crap that's there. It's just like, holy smokes, this is why the whole system doesn't work. It's because we scared each other into these little corners 
and we and we broke the opportunity for human relationship and human synergy. We wound up becoming a very a silo society. You know, it's too many things, too many specialists, you know. And I, I think, quite frankly, I think that's one of the advantages we have as farmers is that um, we're really good generalists. You know, we're, we're, we're part-time mechanic, we're part-time software programmer, we're, we're part-time, you know, planting. Uh, uh, we're also a marketer. We're, we're looking at all these different things. So I think one of the hopes in, in trying to change uh, the direction in which the ag production paradigm is going is the fact that farmers are very diverse by their very nature and uh, farmers are wired to do the right thing when given the right information and you know that's what we hope at Ag Emerge is to bring great minds like you together with great minds like you'll meet Dwayne Beck and and some other people here at this conference to see how we can all take all of our backgrounds and, and work that together for the, the greater good. And I think ag technology startups, instead of just feeding the beast, you know, we're, we're getting yeah. a couple more bushel, a couple more bushel, a couple more bushel. How do we create systems that uh, regenerative agriculture, you know, can automatically move cattle across the pasture? Or how can they uh, plant multi-species crops at once and harvest each one at its ideal time with miniaturized robotics and how can we identity preserve the DNA of the soil that the, that the plant is grown in and preserve that all the way to where you're feeding your clients and know where that came from and what the microbiome makeup of that is. All of that is available out there within the technology space right now. How do we get it pointed in the right direction? You know, so there's, there's just, there's some amazing needs out there. But um, what, one observation on that that surprised me since starting, you know, spending more time on farms now, while I agree that farmers really are the jack of all trades, they, they have to be as any small business you know, owner has to be. But there's two issues that I see. One is I don't think they're generalists anymore, by and large. I think that they're either a crop guy or a grow crop dude or they're a, a cow guy. <laughs> and so the the true generalists that i'm finding are mostly women and so the farm a lot of the women who are going into farming or running the farm have this has have a better grip on the importance of process and importance of you know biodiversity and diversity of income streams for some reason the male brain so likes i'm going to plant corn and i'm going to plant 2000 rows of that corn and i'm going to get more bushels of corn than anybody else on the block that like fits the male psyche so well. And I think because of that male goal-oriented brain, we've fallen into these subspecializations of farming. And so our, the farms that we're seeing jump the best from chemical farming back into region have a very strong female presence on the farm. Usually it's a spouse or it's maybe a mother or it's you know some other you know daughter who's coming up the, the, the chain of uh, command there in the family or whatever it is. but. The women are very good at recognizing and understanding more complex networks of, of potential of income and the rest, and I think are better business, you know, generalists than are the male mindsets. And so that's a remember to take your wife out on a date this week, and b, you know, <laughs> you know, make sure you're diversifying your workforce on the farm such that you've got these multiple mindsets in there. Um, and, you know, just do a, a gut check of, am I really a generalist or am I actually wearing a bunch of hats I shouldn't wear because I'm not very good at them and I'm stuck in, in a monoculture, monocropping mindset over here? 
the other thing is keeping you in a box that keeping you from really escaping perhaps the the financial potential that you're capable of is finding partners and finding people uh, to really come alongside of you and take the IT software management off your hands and take the business development side off your hands such that your stress levels and your bandwidth of time opens up enough that you'd be like, wait, I know how we can get cattle back in here. I know we, how we can move this. I know how on my land I could get 32 species cover crop in here. Yeah, then you're doing the real farming again. And so that's where I would really encourage anybody listening would be, how can you find other farmers in the regenerative ag environment, not just for ideas on how to grow food, but what resources could you share? Could you have one business development you know, expert overseeing five farms? And that's what we're trying to do at Farmers Footprint ultimately is how do we create a new economy for farmers that not just teaches you how to, to do the techni techniques and technical side of farming, how do we bring around you a new economy? Instead of borrowing from banks, what if you had private capital that would come alongside of you in a, in a partnership method instead of just a lending method? Whereas, you know, you're going to only have to pay out to your partners as your income grows instead of just being beholden to the exact same amount you borrow this year plus interest next year. And so instead, what if you had a three to five year run with private capital saying you guys are going to get your return on investment over the next three to five years as I go 6x and 10x on my income, you'll get your return on investment and I'll have a booming business that I can maintain generations into the future. That's where we want to see this expertise really fall into play. And uh, even if you're not working with Farmers Footprint, if you're anybody out there, just start thinking strategically about what are the resources you could share with other farmers? Is that bookkeepers? Is that you know the, the business strategist? Is that a capital investor? Who can you bring into the mix in a partnership kind of shared co-op environment where multiple farmers are getting the ability to start to scale? I didn't get successful with my companies for seven years because it took me seven years to find all of the right people that could augment all of my weaknesses. During that first five years, I certainly did everything. I was sweeping floors, I was cleaning bathrooms, and I was you know, writing prescriptions, and I was seeing patients, and I was doing spreadsheets, and I was doing payroll, and it was a freaking nightmare. And I just ground myself into total exhaustion. And so you're welcome to do that and prove that to yourself. I have a feeling all of you are already either right there or have done that before. And then you finally find out, you know, if I don't hire into these positions, I A, will never grow and B, I'll never be happy. I'll always be exhausted. And so we're too general. And on the flip side, we're, we're not general enough, you know. And so we have this weird mashup, I think, in both the physician world and the farming world of we're super independent and we're killing ourselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the stress load is can get pretty overwhelming, especially when people are painted themselves into a corner where they are a dairy farmer, you know, or they yep. are an almond farmer affected by exports right now, or they're a corn farmer or a soybean farmer. Um, you know, I like to remind them, you're not a one thing farmer. You're a farmer. You, you, you're, you're supposed to raise what we need, not, not just one individual crop. So... I think that's uh, that's important to keep the diversity out there, like you're saying, and also being willing to bring on the people who are in your weak spots. I mean, I one of the things I did in my business was was bring on people who, um, you know, 
for administrative support and, and also for field support when we were uh, growing our business in California. And, and it makes all the difference in the world because then I can focus on what I'm most passionate about and, and, and you the same. Everyone listening uh, can do that same thing. So knowing when to delegate and especially that takes sometimes that takes capital. And that's an interesting point that you make there of, you know, bringing up a private capital type of an arrangement for a farm to diversify. Because today in the commodity world of farming, you have to farm a commodity so you can get insurance so that the bank will loan you money, which requires you to be stuck in that commodity cycle. Uh, it's a yep. never-ending loop. And when we've integrated uh, livestock on our farm here in Illinois, you know, we're setting out ground uh, that isn't in a program. Uh, so we, we lose payments, we lose land base, we lose, you know, yield history. All, there's a lot of negatives uh, to discourage you from, from doing it the way that you should. But you just yeah. have to persevere and, and, and power through knowing that in the end it's what's best. But, boy, it is a tough transition, and, and it takes a lot of capital to, to do that. And fortunately, we, we have a successful farm that, with a good acre base and not a lot of debt. So we're able to do that. But for somebody who want, that is living on the edge or somebody who wants to get into farming, it is a problem. And offering that capital base is a great opportunity. And, and plus, it's a great opportunity for somebody who's you know, maybe close to retirement or has been successful and they want to make a positive impact on the food supplier, on the ecosystem, and they can support that. And then they get a return. And I bet I know what happens to that person that gets a return in five to seven years. They're going to put it right back into the next emerging farmer. So that's that's, right. a, that's yeah. a great idea, and uh, I think that that has a lot of legs to it. So I, I hope I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that. So to back up just a little bit, you got introduced to um, soil health um, and what's going on with and the microbiome at the root surface and also free-living organism in the soil is upregulating plants and transferring all these special nutrients through to our bodies, which is how it was designed uh, to work or or evolved to work yeah. depending on your point of no, view. Designed, yeah. Yeah, it's it's there's just when you look when you get into the fine uh, fine details of all of the intricate interconnections, and if you put the math behind that to to be something other than designed is is pretty pretty amazing. But anyway, yeah. um, how how did who are some of the people that opened your eyes to this and, and making those connections that that got you fired up and 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 pointed you in the direction that you're going here today? Um, for me, it all started with, you know, on the medical side. So it yeah. was people like uh, Neil Barnard, who learned from Dean Ornish, who learned from Colin Campbell, who was contemporary with, uh, you know, Esselstein. So these are a bunch of the, the world of plant-based nutrition and how it impacts human health dating back to the 60s. And so for the last, you know, 60, 80 years, you know, we've had some great minds in this space, uh, the Rodale uh, kind of mindset and all of this. Early on, they got into, you know, the regenerative organic kind of concepts through human health again. So I think, you know, dating all the way back to Weston A. Price as a dentist who got into nutrition and all this, like it's been 100 years since Weston A. Price really did a lot of his great writing and stuff like that. So it's not, you know, on that side, it's not a new discovery or, or discussion. I think the crossroads for me came when we decided we need to go shoot the documentary film 
on on the farms and show the impact of Roundup on the water systems and our cancer explosion that's happened. And I wanted to show you know the world, look, it, we are literally collecting 80% of the Roundup you know runoff in our country into a single water system of the Mississippi, and we have the highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world right there between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, the last 90 miles of the Mississippi River. So we set out to tell that story. The very first farm we got to way up in Minnesota as we started at the headwater or the, the tributaries and moving down to the, the base of the Mississippi over a two week road trip of filming. That very first farm that ends up being the, the feature uh, of our our first uh, farmers footprint documentary, uh, the first segment of the series and uh, Don and and uh, and Grant Brightcruz there were just amazing to us like i had no idea at that point the severe stressors that a family farm is under today i had no idea of anything we had just talked about in the last few minutes and so i would say that just as my patients became my best teachers you know at the clinic the farmers themselves have become my best teachers as to the macroeconomics and microeconomics and the the collapse of you know scientific thought in farming um the farmers are the place to learn all of that quick. Uh, you, know, you can spend you know, hundreds of hours listening to debates at the USDA and all these regulatory levels and you get nowhere. You get nothing but a bunch of you know, pharmaceutical fear mongering and the rest. And so to get back down on the farm was my, my great teaching moment for me, I think, or my great experience once again of a steep learning curve. And so the farmers all the way down the, uh, in those couple weeks down to Mississippi, was an amazing journey and in, in, once we were into Louisiana it was just amazing what these farmers are up against. The toxicity of the, the, the farm systems as you head south gets so severe. Uh, the, the invasive weeds now that are all Roundup resistant, the amount of disease in the families, the children are affected with attention deficit to autism spectrum to weird immune dysfunction, autoimmunity, the parents have cancer. It's just, you just can't even measure the, the horrific, you know, pressure and stress that these families are under just from a health standpoint, let alone all the economic pressures that we just mentioned. And so the, I think they've again been my greatest teachers. My, my hope you know, has definitely been kindled by the Soil Health Academy team, uh, Gabe Brown, Alan Williams, Ray Archuleta, uh, David up in North Carolina or up in uh, North Dakota there, like just great, great people that have been teaching farmers how to make this transition from chemical farming dependence all the way to kind of that freedom and independence of of regenerative agriculture. And they, they've not only taught it, they've lived it. They still, you know, Allen's farms down in Mississippi are booming with 10,000 acres down there kicking butt. And he's got some of the, the most profitable land around. And and so these guys are really walking the talk. Gabe Brown's got some of the, the, mo the highest nutrient density soils on the planet today after his 30 years of efforts there. And so, you know, just this is the, these have been some of the personalities that have come along to give me hope um, that they're the solutions are at hand that they just needed, you know, maybe some scalability. And that's what we started Farmers Footprint to do is we recognize the same problem that's happening over in, in medicine and happening over here in the farming world, not just in the agricultural business side, but actually in the nonprofit side. There was all this kind of disagreement between Rodale and Savory Network and Kiss the Ground and farmers themselves 
all kinds of disagreement around should we certify organic should we certify regenerative organic should we create there's 64 new labels you know that are coming down the pipeline right now for farmers that's ridiculous like there's no way you know a farmer's going to be able to you know sort out which of the 64 are the right ones for them to pay for and jump through the hoops of getting registered as or certified as and and so we started and we realized we don't need more certifications we need just simple education to the consumer as much as the farmer so that the consumer can become the ally to the farmer again. We need to cut out all these middlemen that are manipulating the system for their own gain and simply say the consumer wants real good food for their kids, farmer wants to produce real good food for the kids, let's get those back together, let's cut out all the manipulation of the USDA, the crop insurance, all these things that are keeping people locked from not growing food. Things really got, got crazy in Kansas. Um, uh, you, I'm sure you know Gail Fuller and his uh, whole operation at Fuller Farms over there. Generations, they just lost that farm due to, to a lot of, you know, the market pressures and familial issues and everything else that all the farmers are under. Fuller Farms, you know, at that event, you know, Gail got up and gave us the statistics on just Kansas. 90% of Kansas is agricultural land. Kansas imports 90% of its food. And one in four children goes hungry in Kansas every night. And so that was just such a, I'd already been lecturing this circuit for years. I'd already done the documentary. And when I heard that statistic, it just, that was it for me. I was like, that's, that's the problem. We, we stopped growing food. 90% of the land is agricultural and they're starving. They can't even grow their own food. They're importing 90% of their food and they're, they're going hungry. How is this possible? What are we growing? Ultimately, we're growing welfare. Uh, most of the crops this year, you know, how many was it? 30 million, you know, tons of corn got wasted last year or whatever it was because it couldn't sell. It was selling at minus $60 a bushel or something ridiculous. You probably know these numbers better than I do. Um, same thing was happening with across the commodities market as as Trump and the politicians were screwing around with China and everything else. Like all the tariffs went up, all hell broke loose we're not growing food we're putting these massive you know swaths of our most you know precious land commodities into stockpiles of of corn and soybean alfalfa and the like that's going to end up rotting in silos somewhere because we can't get rid of it fast enough because we didn't get paid to make food we got paid to for bushels of something and so that kind of mindset has got gotten to its full extreme i hope I don't think we can push it too much more extreme than it's gone, and we need to fix that. And so Kansas needs to start growing food for Kansas again. We need to start feeding those children again so that they could be healthy enough to actually inherit the farm. The problem that we see on these farms is that these kids are sick. Uh, again and again, these kids are in and out of the hospital at, at four years old, 14 years old, all the way up with asthma attacks, allergies, pneumonia, you know, you know, mood disorders, major depression, suicidality, all of this is just like so rampant now in the child's generation. Like, how do we expect them to be well enough to go on to learn how to run the farm in all of its complexity that you described? How is that kid going to multitask like that? Can't. When they're when sick, we cannot learn. We cannot be inspired to, to reach that work ethic that would be necessary to inherit that farm. And so all of that was, you know, the influencers and the influence uh, that has brought me to where I am today.
I don't give short answers. I apologize for that. No, no, I'm I'm not good at short answers either. But the good news is I'm not being interviewed. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, recently, I just ran across some uh, uh, research, and I'm you know this is out of my field because I'm I'm a crop guy, farm guy, and on on those kind of things. Um, that that was talking about animals and how they are uh, how they are raised, and it was a published paper in a. Um, reputable journal i can't remember the name right now off the top of my head um but what it was saying is the stress levels in animals in, in which they are raised and a lot of times in our confined uh feeding operations um that we're increasing you know stress hormones cortisol um adrenaline and those things inside the animal then when we consume the meat uh that that is translating uh, into us as people um, are you familiar with some of those type of studies? And I, I guess also that hormone level at a certain level in animal can be ex exponentially expressed inside of a human. So it's not, you know, um, it can have a dramatic effect on people and a small effect on animals. Um, have, have you run across any of that research or, or what, what are your thoughts on that as far as animal mm -hmm. welfare and its contribution to human welfare? Yeah, I lecture on this all the time. It's such a critical topic. We, we are so wrong about our concept of nutrition. Uh, we, we keep thinking it's about carbohydrates or proteins or fats or whatever it is. And we keep bickering over what is the best you know, diet to have. It turns out that you know, that has almost nothing to do with you know, how your body ends up going to use the, those, those fuels. Um, sugar and fat are basically the same fuel when it comes down to the mitochondria that will produce the energy your body runs on. Sugar in the form of glucose or fat in the form of fatty acids, those are both long carbon chains that are broken down into exactly the same molecule in the very first step of digestion by the mitochondria, which is something called acyl-CoA. One more enzyme step, it takes a millionth of a second for that, that sugar to shoot through these channels, you've got you know, acetyl-CoA, two little enzyme flips and you, your fatty acid and your sugar are exactly the same molecule. So by your mitochondrial standpoint, it doesn't care if you're eating fat, sugar, or what's your fuel source. So what is it that would go on to determine if you're going to use that food as an effective fuel or as, you know, a stress-inducing, you know, food that will be stored inappropriately in your body? In the end, it's what are all the signals around those calories, and what is it? What are those signals telling your body to do? The food that we eat today is so extremely stressed out. Imagine a piece of chicken. That chicken was butchered at about six weeks of age. A boiler chicken, six to seven weeks of old by the time it goes from egg to to butcher. For the vast majority of that chicken on the market, that chicken has never seen the light of day. It's been confined in a, in a dark barn lit by artificial lighting. It's stacked five to seven chicken uh, houses high, the, confined to the space it can't turn around in. Its beak's been cut off. It's never scratched on the grass. It doesn't know what its purpose is. It doesn't have a sense of you know care or nurture from a, a mother. It's an isolated, terror-stricken animal and it, it's never going to see nature and then it will be butchered in that extreme state straight state of stress and and health collapse a third of the birds have already died from invasive bacterial infections and and the like by the time we hit six weeks of, of butcher age so a third have died and you're left with this two-thirds of the stressed out rapidly dying you know crop of birds 
And that's what we then go and butcher. And at that moment, that bird is full of not just the chemicals that are were ingested, which are awful, the amount of antibiotics in a chicken, the amount of, you know, uh, growth factors, the estrogen, progesterone, and everything else that are tagged onto that bird, and and it forces it to to fatten up faster. All of those hormones, all the antibiotics, in some ways pale in comparison to the genetics that's going on at that moment. Some 98.5% of the DNA in our bodies we call junk DNA. That's because it doesn't go on to make a gene. That junk DNA is actually the stuff that makes the signaling molecules that we call microRNA. MicroRNA go on to inform the entire environment what's going on in the cell right now. So if the cell is stressed, the microRNA is going to send out stress signal and the entire environment around that single cell will have to start to respond appropriately to, oh my gosh, we're in a fight or flight state, nobody cares, we're in a death state, we're dying. Panic, 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 we're in starvation, there's no actual nutrients around, there's just you know sugar and fat, but there's no micronutrients, there's no you know real nourishment around, and so I'm gonna store fat. And so the cow stores fat, the chicken stores fat, and we, they gain, fa- gain weight faster for all of that stress. But now you put that piece of chicken or beef in your mouth and you just filled your bloodstream with the microRNA from a stressed out animal that now sends signal to your genome to make the same adaptive response and you're going to start gaining weight for inexplicable reasons when you look at your nutrient intake but if you look at the genomics it makes total sense you are being accelerated into a growth state just as your food was the hormonal and microRNA environment of your food was created to speed the growth of that animal. We were never supposed to be eating chickens at six weeks of age. We were supposed to eat them no sooner than a couple years of age, I suspect, but certainly six months of age would have been normal 100 years ago. Now at six weeks, to compress the lifespan that short, we had to stress the hell out of that animal. And we shouldn't be surprised with our current understanding of genetics why we as a species consuming that food suddenly are gaining weight inexplicably and have stress. Anxiety disorders, major depression, the top two kind of leading things. And then you tie in insomnia, sexual dysfunction, and the rest of the pressures kind of at the endocrine system that's shutting down there. And you realize, wow, that's that's our whole population. So we've done a very, very good job um, of doing what we thought was best as farmers is producing food efficiently, right? And in the process, we've ignored or, or we've lost track of uh, the fact of the animal as a being. We've also lost track of the fact that there's more going on than just pounds of meat or pounds of grain or, or, or pounds of vegetables that we're shipping from our farm. But, you know, that that's changing, right? And, and we're becoming aware of that. But, you know, one of the things is, is that the reason we produce food in that manner today is because it is as far as we know, the exter- we're externalizing a lot of costs. We're externalizing costs in uh, manure pollution. We're externalizing costs in air pollution, water quality, all that stuff on the production side. But we're also externalizing costs on the health uh, community uh, from raising food that isn't uh, balanced nutritionally, isn't balanced microRNA or hormonally or, or those kind of things. So a lot of those external costs, we have no way of quantifying those external costs today. But it's within reason, 
and uh, I'll probably get lots of nasty grams here for saying this, but it's within reason if you were to account for all of the costs associated with the production side and on the consumption side, both in health and in ecosystem disservices, that likely if that was added back into the meat that we're buying or the vegetables that we're buying in the grocery store compared to food that is produced in the way that it was designed to be produced uh, and not create the health problems and not create the ecosystem problems, if that total uh, cost was weighed with those two, uh, and this is completely hypothetical, there's no way to prove it today, but there will be in the future, I would contend that you know, producing food the way nature produces it would be least cost. And if we could get to that point where those costs could be ascribed back to our current production practices or could be credited against our regenerative ag practices to bring them into balance, then we would have a way on the consumer side uh, to drive more votes. You know, we need votes, and that's, that's people purchasing. Because today, for example, on grass-fed beef, it's roughly 2x the cost uh, to, to, to raise compared to corn-fed. And people just don't vote for something that's, that's twice as much. Um, wh what do you think as far as those externalized costs on the, on the health side? Uh, you've seen that. I mean, uh, would you agree I that can, we've, we've uh, you know, $3 you hamburger is yeah. costing us a dollar a pound of health care costs? Or, uh, I would that... say it's even more. I think that it's even more. I think, you know, so the numbers are pretty well known. Uh, our current healthcare industry is around $3.5 trillion a year just in the United States. That's not healthcare, that's disease management. We don't prevent disease, we treat disease. So we have $3.7 trillion a year. To put that in perspective, we only spend $680 billion on all of our military, homeland security, national defense, everything at $680 so billion. Six, five, five and a half, six more. times more, yeah. So five, five times that on healthcare. And so if you want to know the impact on our nation, it is our highest budget line as a country, period. We spend more money on, on disease management than anything else. So $3 trillion. Let's be generous to the farmer and say, only we'll just count $2 trillion of that $3 trillion as direct impact from nutrition. I believe it's closer to 95% of that. Uh, but let's, let's say it's only two-thirds. So that's $2 trillion. Then we have to take into consideration the extraordinary cost of just soil loss. So let's just take those two things, human health loss and soil loss. Currently, we're losing an estimated 11% of gross domestic product in the form of soil every year due to runoff, silting, uh, et cetera. We have a $17 trillion GDP. So that means that we're somewhere around $1.7, $1.8 trillion in soil loss and at least two, if not $3 trillion in health costs. So add those together, we're around $4 trillion just in human health and direct soil cost to the food that we're producing that never gets put onto that price tag of that pound of beef. And so we are subsidizing through healthcare and through government payouts to chemical companies to put in the inputs that are, you know, that are compensating for that 11% of our GDP loss in soil. So we're paying our pharmaceutical companies through the healthcare system and we're paying our pharmaceutical companies through the chemical industry of farming to, to take over $4 trillion of our, our hard-earned money every year, just in America, $4 trillion a year. And now you start to add in Australia, Canada, South America, Brazil being a massive one, et cetera, et cetera. And you go around the world and you realize, oh my gosh, these chemical companies are making tens and tens of trillions of dollars a year off of our poor management decisions. 
And so we can keep lining their pockets. If that's what you want to do, I, I can't really argue that as long as you know, that's what you're doing. And, and I think that's my concern is farmers don't realize what they're doing. Doctors don't realize what we're doing. We don't realize we're simply trained from a fear and guilt standpoint to believe in one thing, which is we need more chemicals. <laughs> we need more drugs. We need more herbicides. We need more pesticides. We need more fertilizers. We need smarter drugs. We need more technology on the chemical side, not less. We are so duped and we are lining their pockets. $4 trillion a year in the United States alone. Let's turn that back to the farmer. I want to make the farmers the wealthiest segment of our, our nation once again. Remember, that's how we started our country. Our richest people in the United States at the beginning were all farmers. George Washington, farmer. Thomas Jefferson, farmer. You know, and so these guys who founded our country became wealthy in their ability to manage large amounts of farmland. That, we need to reverse the economy. Our economy is now owned by advertising companies that we masquerade as information technology, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Those are a bunch of advertisers who are, are owning your world and the chemical companies. Those two segments are who own your life. And my, my mission really is to set out to re recreate a, a grassroots economy in both those areas, farming. And I've got a whole software company. We're working on reinventing the internet for the for civil liberties and for human rights uh, to be baked into that environment i believe we can build a whole new society if we really give these two pieces back to all of you who are listening if we could give you an internet that worked for you it protected you you owned all your data you owned all of your your intellectual property all of your creativity all of your curiosity you owned all that and you then that same internet connected you to the resources that you need to become that multidisciplinary, multifaceted team to create a massive economy around what you do in your farm. That's what I want to empower you to. And I really appreciate you guys having me on to, to move this story forward. Well, I will say this. You're not afraid to try big ideas, are you? No, I, I can't sleep without with myself if I don't try. <laughs> that is awesome. No, I think that's incredible, the work that you're doing there and, and how you're thinking ahead. And, and really, at Ag Emerge, that's what we're we're so happy to have you a part of that is we're trying to introduce uh, farmers and entrepreneurs to big-picture thinkers such as yourself to really look at where where the future is going. So talk, talk in closing here a little bit about where, where do you see the future? Okay, so so you get to the point where you look back on on your um, your career and your your retirement, or or maybe you're. Well, I'm guessing you're probably one of those that will retire, you know, the day before the funeral, you know, and get, just come screaming into home base, uh, hot. Right. And uh, uh, what's that going to look like when you when you look back on what what's the vision that you're going to see uh, of the impact that you made and what the world will look like then. Um, if I'm successful in everything that I'm doing right now, there will still be a world uh, when I die. Uh, we're on track to go extinct as a species in the next 60 to 70 years. Uh, I want my grandchildren to have a world to live in. I want my grandchildren to have a species to, to fellowship with. I want my grandchildren to understand that the value of a chicken or a dog or a cat or a cow 
is equal to that of the humans they live around. I would like to see our grandchildren come to realize that life is what's important in every form that it would come and that we are called into a cooperative relationship with that ecosystem of life. And the more that we try to control that for our own gain, the more we try to game the system of nature, the faster we're going to die. Um, it, I get up every morning and go full out every day for as many hours as I possibly can sustain it because we're at the brink. We're at a total tipping point in human history. Uh, we cannot reproduce beyond the next couple decades. Uh, our sperm counts in all Western countries have dropped by 52 to 58% in the last 35 years. And so if we repeat that again, we will have you know some four or five out of every six males infertile. Our species is coming to the end because of our incapacity to re reproduce. Couple with that, uh, one in three children with autism by 2035, 70% of adults with cancer by 2035. That still to me sounds like some far off history. 2035 sounds remote, but 2020 is kind of freaking me out that we're right there. We're 16 years away from one in three children with autism, 70% of adults with cancer. We are 15 years away from the financial collapse of our nation at best. Uh, we will be lucky to survive the next seven years as a nation with the amount of uh, acceleration in healthcare costs and the collapse of productivity that we're seeing across all generations right now. We see children having to drop out of high school and college because they're too sick to finish their studies. Uh, if you know, it, we just do not have productivity left. Uh, we see dementia uh, in 100% of uh, individuals in the United States over the age of 28. Uh, we, by age 28, we're all showing that neurocognitive changes of short-term memory loss. And so uh, over the age of 28, we've, we've passed our prime. Leading up to 28, we're fighting for the opportunity to reach a prime. And so we are not functioning as a society right now, and we need to come to terms with that, and we need to change everything. We need to pull our head out of the sand, and we need to collectively get together to change the way that we do all the big things, health, energy, ecology, food production, community. All of these things need to fundamentally change so that when we wake up in 40 years, there's still a planet. And there's still, you know, uh, children running around with the expectation of hope for a future. That is excellent. I agree with you 100%. I really look forward to spending time with you in Monterey in January. It's going to be an excellent time where we can all learn from each other and, and learn how we can tackle this big, big issue. Because, yes, uh, human genetics, soil health, all these things are coming to a head, and they're coming to a head really quickly. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about how we can all work together to, to really save the future. So thank you so much for being on today, Dr. Zach. I appreciate the both of you. Thank you so much, Monty, Kim. Thank you. So once again, we want to encourage you to join us at Aggie Merge in beautiful Monterey, California in January the 7th through the 9th. We're going to have a great time. You know, our theme there is accelerating knowledge, facilitating leadership, and equipping for action. And we want to just be able to present you with a conference that offers a unique opportunity to hear from multiple perspectives and see how thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward thinkers like you are tackling some of the most challenging problems in agriculture. 
It's an immersive conference. You're going to love this experience with new technology highlights and big picture discussions. Uh, we'll be looking at emerging trends in soil, plant, and animal health. You're going to have an ample opportunity to trade ideas amongst some of the best minds in agriculture today. There's a lot of folks talking about it that were there last year, and they're excited about what this year is going to bring. So we encourage you to join us for Ag Emerge. Sign up at agemerge.com. There's a registration link. There's still an early bird opportunity. So we'd like to encourage you to join us and be part of the conversation. Thanks so much. Have a great day.